chapter 18. Two major letters in your New Testament Paul wrote to the Corinthians, to the church in Corinth. And let's just say they didn't have it all together. If you ever feel like complaining about your church, just read Corinthians. You'll soon be giving thanks for your church. Wonderfully saved, but much immaturity and worldliness lingered. Still, Paul's letters to the church serve us well to this day as he applies the wisdom of the cross and he works out the new covenant and how it comes alive in God's people. Well, today we learn how the Lord birthed, how He started the church in Corinth through Paul preaching them the gospel. Let's look at it in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Don't be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I'd have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them out from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truthfulness 
and its trustworthiness. And we pray that we would bank our lives upon it. And I pray that you would use um, the preaching and explanation of this word now to better equip us as a church to do gospel work and also to rest ourselves wholly in your faithfulness. Thank you for your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So like Athens, Corinth was a a major city, a major Roman city. Corinth was not known as a place of learning, though. It was known as a place of trade. It hosted two harbors uh, for seamen and uh, uh, merchants, and one to the east and one was to the west. Uh, As one author put it, Paul must have seen its strategic importance If trade could radiate from Corinth in all directions, so could the gospel. Paul plants the gospel in Corinth, and God causes great growth. That's what happens in our passage. But as we approach the passage, there are four movements or four scenes that stand out in in my reading, and, and from them I want to develop four lessons for gospel ministry. If you're a Christian, by the way, you're in gospel ministry. Right? Ministry doesn't belong to the leaders in the church. Merely, it belongs to everybody in the church. All disciples are in ministry. It's just that our gifts and roles differ. But here are four lessons for your gospel ministry from Acts 18. Lesson number one, faithful partners are the Lord's gifts and hard work is instrumental to the gospel ministry. Faithful partners are the Lord's gifts and hard work is instrumental in gospel ministry. Paul leaves Athens. He arrives in Corinth. Verse 2 says he finds a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now by saying Aquila was a native of Pontus, we do well to remember Luke's ongoing theme of the gospel spreading to all nations. The last time we see this this place mentioned, Pontus, was in chapter 2, verse 9. And it's there where we see the Holy Spirit come and people from all over are hearing the mighty works of God spoken in their own language. Now, it's not clear whether Aquila and Priscilla were already Christians or not. Many think it's likely they were. Whatever their status, though, notice how this follows an important truth that we learned in chapter 17, verse 26. Just look back up to chapter 17, verse 26, and we see there it says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God. We learned from that 
verse that God is sovereign over the movement of peoples. Right? Claudius forces all the Jews to leave Rome. That's not outside God's control. Claudius may have evil motives, but God's purpose remains right on track. The Lord has plans for this couple to meet Paul And whether they were converted or simply matured further under Paul's ministry, Aquila and Priscilla become key partners in gospel ministry. They're people with a trade. Tent makers, verse 3 says, uh, it seems that they're wealthy. They host Paul in Corinth. Um, When they're back in Rome, the whole church is meeting in their house. Uh, When they move later to Ephesus, again, the church meets in their house. They show hospitality and they use their wealth to bless others. But even more, listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 16 about this couple. Romans chapter 16, verses 3 and 4. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, But all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. A few times in his ministry, Paul finds himself very alone. But what treasures such partners were when they come. What treasures such partners are when they come. Beloved, you and I need to be partners like this in the Gospel. We need partners like this. Gospel ministry isn't something we do alone. So give thanks for one another. God's sovereign hand has has gathered us together for gospel ministry in this city. But something else to develop here is this. You'll notice in verse 3 that Paul stayed with them because he was of the same trade. Paul had a trade He had a skill by which he made money. And yes, at times he received money from other churches and and that money freed him to teach the Word full time, but wherever it served the Gospel's advance, Paul didn't shy away from working hard with his hands. Even more, Paul viewed working hard with his hands as instrumental in Gospel ministry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, his reason for working this way is actually to image Christ. Christ set aside his rights to be seen as glorious in order to serve others. And in the same way, Paul sets aside his rights to receive payment in order to serve others, the gospel free of charge. Or listen to what he says in Acts chapter 20. If you want to bounce over just a couple of chapters, Acts chapter 20, verse 34 and 35, he says, You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He Himself said, it's more blessed to give 
than to receive. Now that's in Ephesus, but he's doing the same thing in Corinth, okay? Why work hard? To meet his necessities and to give to those in need. Or uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. So, so how did hard work serve Paul's gospel ministry? Well, it exemplified Christ by foregoing His rights as an apostle to serve others. It gave opportunity to teach converts how to follow Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And it offered His churches an example to imitate so they didn't become idle, busybodies, lazy, That's why he works with Aquila and Priscilla. Beloved, working hard with your hands isn't a lesser thing. And I say that especially for those who aspire to uh, maybe leadership in the church. Working hard with your hands is not a lesser thing. It's an instrumental thing in gospel ministry. One of the greatest blessings was watching my younger brother, Brandon, and four other families move and plant a church in Philadelphia. All of them went with this mindset of, we're going to find jobs, and we're going to serve each other. We're going to serve the church. It's not a a lesser thing to work hard. Outside support is a blessing, but we're not dependent on it. We're going to work hard with our hands and then use what we have to serve others. Lesson number two, responsible evangelism exposes the consequences of unbelief while extending the gospel to others. Responsible evangelism exposes the consequences of unbelief while extending the gospel to others. Verse four, Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. He tried to persuade Jews and Greeks Uh, Verse 5 shows him occupied with the ministry of the Word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. When I say he exposes the consequences of, of unbelief, don't hear me saying that all we need to do is share the Gospel one time with somebody and be done with them. Don't hear me saying that. Paul is spending weeks with these people, and sometimes months with these people, trying patiently to persuade them that the Christ was Jesus. Many of the Jews, though, reject that message still. They continue in their unbelief. Verse 6 says, they opposed and reviled Him. They found it folly to identify their Messiah with the Jesus they had crucified. And so Paul exposes the consequences of their unbelief. I want you to notice the prophetic act in verse 6. He shook out his garments. 
Okay, Jesus taught the disciples something similar. Uh, the most detail comes when Jesus sends out the 72 in Luke chapter 10. And they were to shake the dust from their feet as a sign of judgment against Israel. And when they did, he says, it would be more bearable on judgment day for Sodom than for the Jews who reject their Messiah. So we're looking at condemnation here. And then there's also the prophetic word in verse 6. Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. Think of this. These are Jews trained in the Scriptures. They know the Scriptures. They're going to the synagogue. They've heard Ezekiel read. This is language ripped right out of Ezekiel. Right? Ezekiel was God's watchman. And watchmen would need to scan the horizon and warn the city of any dangers. Well, likewise, Ezekiel, as God's watchman, was to be responsible and warn Israel of God's coming judgment. And if Ezekiel kept quiet, he was responsible for the people's blood. But if he was faithful to warn them, they were responsible. So in a very sharp way, Paul draws from this Old Testament imagery and he says, I'm innocent of your blood. I, he's saying, I've delivered the Lord's message faithfully to you. I have fulfilled my responsibility. Death be on your own heads. And so the consequences of unbelief that Paul is exposing here are both condemnation and death. And that's still true. If you reject Christ, if you stiff-arm His words and think Scripture is a bunch of baloney, we'll do everything we can to persuade you otherwise. We'd love the opportunity to hear your objections to the Bible and work through the Bible with you and, and show you the beauty of God's love and show you the incredible awesomeness of His holiness. We'd love to tell you why we are so guilty in sin and what God in His love has done to send Christ to redeem us from our sins and to forgive us our sins and to satisfy God's wrath. We would love to tell you how Jesus makes us right with God. But if you still... Resist that message, only condemnation and death await you. The other piece to his response here is that he extends salvation to others, uh, to the Gentiles in particular. Look at, look at the end of, of verse 6. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, Paul doesn't mean that he's just frustrated and finished with these stubborn Jews. That from now on, he's reaching Gentiles only and forever. No, a Jew gets saved in verse 8. And uh, that's Crispus. And then later in verse 19, when he goes to Ephesus, he's back in the synagogue with Jews. It's not from now on... And for as many days as the Lord gives me, I'm not talking to you anymore. 
No. That's not what he's saying. What is he saying then? Well, Romans 1.16 is very helpful. Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. You see this priority, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Paul recognizes that the Jews hold a privileged place in God's redemption story. But that same redemption story includes this. It includes God extending His salvation beyond Israel to the nations by the ministry of a servant. And we know that servant's name is Jesus Christ. And, and get this, in Isaiah 49, that extension would happen in the face of Israel largely rejecting the servant. Okay? You can see this in Isaiah 49. We, we went there when we were in Acts 13, and Paul quotes it. But, but in Isaiah 49, the servant's mission, it wasn't going to be a smooth one. It's actually quite frustrating. He cries out to the Lord, I've labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. And then the Lord gives him these words of assurance. It says, no, no, it's too small a thing to bring back the preserved of Israel. We're not just going to have a few remnant Jews here and there coming to faith. No, no, no. I will make you a light to the nations, he says. In other words, your work isn't in vain. I'm bringing the nations through you. And then all this is fulfilled in Jesus. He comes to his own people. The majority reject him except for a handful but once he dies and rises again, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. Not only did Jesus die for the nations, he rose to empower his people to win the nations. And all in the face of Jewish opposition. Well, the Apostle Paul then patterns his ministry after Christ, the servant. Okay? He first offers the Jews their king, but then when they stiff-arm the king, he says... I'm extending this to the Gentiles. In the face of Jewish rejection, Paul extends God's salvation to the Gentiles and rather provocatively, I might add, he sets up shop right next door. Verse 7, he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God, his house was next door to the synagogue. So you basically have this Gentile God-fearer. Got a house next door to the synagogue. You know, Paul writes in Romans eleven thirteen. I magnify my ministry to the Gentiles in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous. And thus save some of them. That's his method, his strategy. I'm going to magnify my ministry among the Gentiles to make them jealous in hopes that I'll save some more of them. That's going on here. I'll set up my little outreach shop to the Gentiles right next door to the synagogue. And God blesses it. Crispus, who's the ruler of the synagogue, believes in the Lord. 
together with his entire household. It's amazing. A key leader among the Jews gets, gets saved here. And, and, then, and then you get this, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So you get a, you get a smattering of Jews and a whole lot of Gentiles which fulfills what God said was going to happen with the servant in Isaiah 49. That's how the church in Corinth was born and multiplied. Responsible evangelism, patterned after Christ, the servant. Paul holds up the warning of judgment and then continued offering salvation to Christ to anyone who would listen. And God caused the growth. Perhaps you know people who are without Christ. Let me encourage you to, to remember their names often in prayer. Uh, to look for opportunities to share Christ with them. Truly seek to, to persuade them. I mean, reason with them. Work hard to know where they're coming from and what objections they might have to the faith and, and then apply the gospel in, in meaningful ways. Perhaps some of them need to hear the consequences of their unbelief more explicitly than what you have said in the past. Now, as a pioneering church planter who was also single and sometimes supported full-time, Paul certainly has a unique ministry that's unlike what the majority of ours will look like. But his pattern of, of fervent evangelism is worthy of imitation. He's anxious for people to know Christ. He's burdened for them to hear the Gospel. Romans 10 shows him agonizing in prayer over people's salvation. Our risen Lord Jesus is one who comes to seek and save the lost. And He is alive in you, brothers and sisters. If He is a Lord who comes to seek and save the lost, what ought our lives to look like if He's living inside of us? Lesson three, the promise of the Lord's presence and a people are integral to perseverance. The promise of the Lord's presence and a people are integral to our perseverance. Now to this point in Acts, Paul hasn't stayed in any one town for very long. Okay? Normally, he's driven out by persecution. You can read that in chapter 9, in chapter 14 and 15, and then and 7, uh, 17. He preaches, and he's driven out by persecution. If anything, he'd be expecting the same to come very quickly in Corinth. The Jews hate his message. Now he's got a ministry right next door, and their own synagogue ruler converts to Christianity. Talk about adding fuel to the fire of their jealousy. Will he have to flee again? like we've seen everywhere else in Acts. In this case, the answer is no. The Lord gives Paul very specific instructions not to leave yet, and it comes through a vision. Remember chapter 2, verse 17. 
I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh, declares God, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions. This happens to Paul. Okay, the Lord gives him a vision, and in that vision comes the command, don't be afraid, you go on speaking, and don't be silent. Who's in charge of the mission? It's not Paul. It's the risen Lord Jesus. He's alive. He's very involved. He's calling the shots. And he wants Paul to persevere longer in Corinth than what he has in other cities. And the Lord then grounds His command in in two basic promises. The first is the promise of His presence. and, And with that, His protection. For I am with you, he says, and no one will attack you to harm you. Throughout Scripture, the Lord regularly reassures His people of His presence, especially when they're facing great difficulties. Not only is our God near to His people, but He tells us that He's near. His Word confirms His presence. And it's a word we need to hear over and over again. I mean, if you think about it, Paul had an encounter with the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. He saw it with his own eyes. Yet, he still needs to be reminded again and again of God's presence with him. Now, to be clear, the promise here is specific to the situation in Corinth. Okay, later, Christ also promises Paul that he will suffer greatly in Jerusalem. Christ would still be with Paul in Jerusalem, just as he's with Paul here in Corinth. But Christ's presence doesn't mean that we're automatically protected from persecution in all, in, in all situations. Okay, Christians are protected in other ways at all times. We're just not protected in all ways in every situation. So be careful how you apply this text. Don't go thinking, well, God said it here, so I'm going to go so-and-so, and I shouldn't expect anybody to hurt me. That's the wrong way of applying this promise. What we can say is promised to us in all situations is the Lord's presence, though. Persecution or no persecution. Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And what he means there in Matthew 28 is the, that the disciple, Jesus is with the disciple the whole of every day all the way to the, the to the time when he comes back. Nothing can be more encouraging than Christ reassuring his presence with us. Nothing can be more encouraging because there's no one greater than the risen Lord Jesus. He is the Almighty God. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Ultimately, we need not fear anything. As long as he is with us, we have God in all of his strength and glory. And that's why Paul can say elsewhere that I'm sure of this, 
that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present or things to come for, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation you fill in the blank terminal illness financial insecurity loss of your beloved nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because He is with us. He has taken care of every obstacle that would hinder you from being present with Himself. And He has drawn you into His presence. He is with us and He will never forsake us. The second reason for Paul to persevere is the promise of a people Look at the end of verse 10. For I have many in this city who are my people. Keep preaching. I have many in this city who are my people. You, hear some, you sometimes hear people say that doctrines like predestination and election undermine evangelism. But verse 10 shows just the opposite. Election actually fuels evangelism. It gives us confidence to go on preaching the Word. God has people in this city, He says. He chose them before the foundation of the world. They're already His, My people. And God will save them when they hear the Gospel. It's the same truth we see in Acts 13.48. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? As many as were appointed to eternal life. It's the same truth behind Jesus' words in John 10.16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to My voice. He already has the sheep. His Father gave them to Him. He purchases them with His blood. And when He speaks, when He calls them, they're going to listen and they're going to come into His fold. And that assurance keeps Paul speaking the Gospel here, and that assurance should keep us speaking the Gospel. God has a people for Himself. And we see their future already secured in Revelation 5.9, the Lamb purchased for God a people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. And they will reign on the earth. They will reign on the earth. All of them. So let's go. Let's find them. Let's speak the Gospel far and wide that they may be saved. God is with us and God is a people. What better assurances could we ask for? Lesson four. Even when government rules in our favor... God's faithfulness to His Word remains our only hope, not government. Even when government rules in our favor, God's faithfulness to His Word remains our only hope, not government. Verse 11 says, Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them, I mean, and when you consider how short his time had been in, in other cities, this is quite remarkable. Nearly every city where he ministered before, Jews ran him off. It was best to keep moving along. But here, a year and a half. Now, 
that confirms God's faithfulness to His promise. He told Paul to stay put and that no one was going to hurt him in Corinth. And that's happening, right? That, that's, that's going on. His word is being fulfilled a year and a half. But then a bit of tension rises in the next paragraph. All of a sudden, the Jews rise up and bring Paul before the tribunal. In verse 13, they try to get him in trouble with the law. This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. And what I think is meant there is Roman law, not the Mosaic law. That's clear in Gallio's response. These Jews are trying to convince Gallio that Paul's Christianity isn't a legitimate religion. Rome should not recognize it. He's doing wrong. He's committing a vicious crime against Rome. And so the tension becomes, oh no, like, what about God's promise? I thought God was going to protect Paul in Corinth. Well, God does protect him. Keep reading in verse 14. Though it kind of comes about like some, some of the events you see in the Old Testament where some armies encroaching on, on Israel and going to dominate them and they cry out to the Lord and something else drives them away. They get in fights with each other. Verse 14, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I'd have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see, he's separating Roman law from your own law, and by doing so, he views this as a matter they need to work out on their own. He says, see to it yourselves, I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So a couple things here. One, Gallio rules in favor of Paul. And Gallio implies that Christianity should be a legitimate religion in, in the government's eyes. People in high places like Theophilus, the, the one to whom this is addressed here, could read this account and see that Gallio didn't see any trouble with Christianity. He can go back in their law books. In fact, even in extra-biblical sources, we find Gallio there. And you can find all kinds of things about him, as well as Claudius earlier confirming the Bible's historicity. But guys like Theophilus could go back and read. This is the way Gallio handled the, the case with the Jews. He didn't see any trouble with Christianity. But does that mean Christians should put their hope in government? Even when that government rules in their favor? Never. Not at all. Gallio didn't brush this off so innocently. He turns a blind eye to the beating of Sosthenes. Okay? And if I can... You can test this for yourselves, but if you think about it, it's clear that Rome's already got something against the Jews in verse 2. Claudius, right, drives out all the Jews. 
Uh, in chapter 19, they, uh, verse 34, they've got problems with the Jews. These Gentiles have problems with the Jews in Ephesus. And so it could be that this guy's also got a bias against Jews. Paul happens to have Roman citizenship, so he supports Paul. But whatever the case, we see some mixed motives here in the fact that he, they're, they're beating the synagogue ruler right in front of him, and he's turning a blind eye to it. I'm not seeing anything. So yeah, he ruled in Paul's favor, but with mixed motives. Right to afford Paul the freedom, wrong to overlook injustice to Sosthenes. And therefore, we can't count on government. Governments are run by fallen people. They can't always be trusted. Who's to say the next guy in line wouldn't turn a blind eye to the beating of a Christian? What then ought we to trust? We can trust that God will always be faithful to His Word. He spared Paul. The story is ironic, isn't it? The Jews come to get Paul in trouble, and all they did was get themselves in trouble. And that wasn't the case before. You see, the Jews were in cahoots with King Herod when he killed James and put Peter in prison. That's what happened earlier in Acts. Not here, though. Gallio brushes them off. And the ruler of their own synagogue ends up getting a beating, not Paul. Why not Paul? Because God made a promise to Paul. He revealed the promise to Paul in the vision. He assured Paul that he'd protect him from harm in Corinth, and that's exactly what he does. Again, that doesn't mean the Lord promised protection from harm all the time in every city. He didn't. But he promised it for Paul in Corinth and remained true to his word. So, this fits the much greater story of God's faithfulness to His Word throughout Acts and throughout history. Again and again, Luke points us to God's faithfulness to His Word. All His ancient promises had reached their fulfillment in Christ. His life, His death, His resurrection, His reign, His mission, all of it confirmed God's faithfulness to His Word. He's not a liar. Everything he reveals about himself and his plans is trustworthy, even down to the vision he gives Paul in Corinth, even down to the selection of some guy to replace Judas in chapter 1. I know that most of us have conservative political leanings, And I've noticed a number of folks very excited about the possibility of appointing another conservative Supreme Court justice. And for a number of reasons, we can give thanks if that were to happen. Nothing is certain when it comes to fallen and sinful people who run broken institutions. The only thing that's certain is the word of the Lord, His promises are guaranteed by omnipotent power and an unwavering allegiance to His glory. Only with our Father is there no variation or shadow due to change. God is the only unchanging and unchangeable constant in the universe. 
Only the risen Lord Jesus possesses the supreme right, the perfect wisdom, and the infinite power to ensure that every word he speaks will be fulfilled. Nobody and nothing can keep the Lord's promises from their completion, and that's good news, my beloved, especially when this God says, I am with you always until the end of the age. Especially when this one says that he who began a good work in you will complete it for the day of Christ Jesus. Especially when it's coming from the one who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Therefore, what can man do to you? That's good news. Peter also took comfort in this in his gospel ministry. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Beloved, set your hope in God's faithfulness to his word.